Hi there. My name is Stuart Watson, and I'm the owner of East Peak Advisors. We help companies build, scale, and optimize SDR and inside sales teams. Whether you're looking to optimize existing SDR processes, stand up an entirely new program, or seeking fractional leadership and coaching, East Peak Advisors is here to help. This is the East Peak Podcast, where I interview go-to-market operators, leaders, and individual contributors who make the startup world go round. And today, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Sean Bennett, former World Tour professional cyclist, multiple Grand Tour uh, racer, er, and he's recently transitioned to startup life. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for the intro, and thanks for having me on the show this week. My pleasure. So... um, as I grow this show, hopefully, you know, presumably a lot of the listeners will be kind of go-to-market uh, individual contributors, leaders, and operators, um, some of whom might be uh, a little aware, you know, aware of cycling and, and pro-cycling in particular, but, you know, a lot of people might be uh, newbies. And so, well, I think, like, hopefully you and I will dork out a little bit on um, some of the intricacies of, like, the world tour when you're racing. Um, I think we'll keep some of this high level and definitely want to talk about kind of how that life prepared you or maybe even compared your professional life today. So, um, so maybe from like a really high level standpoint, before we jump into it, I thought maybe we could talk about some of your palmares and some of the things you're really proud of, uh, as a cyclist. I know you made three grand tour appearances. Um, you have a couple, uh, wins and things like that, but is there anything else you'd like to add, uh, or things you're particularly proud of? Yeah, I mean, like a big uh, highlight of my career was doing the tour a few years ago. Um, that was huge for me. I think any American cyclist and cyclists in general just kind of strives to do that. And, you know, to me, that's kind of the pinnacle of the sport. So to be at that level and have competed there, I mean, that's something that I'll cherish for the rest of my life for sure. Um, then, yeah, two Giro appearances and a couple top tens there definitely stand out as well. Very cool. So local boy done good. Um, so, you know, I know you kind of came up through the NICA scene for those of whom that aren't familiar, National Interscholastic, Cy- Interscholastic Cycling Association. So it's a high school mountain bike league uh, nationwide. Um, how did you get into competitive cycling in the first place? And maybe when did you decide like, you know, you were maybe pretty good or you wanted to make more of a go of it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I grew up in a pretty athletic family. Um, I Mom and dad grew up swimming. Mom played water polo pretty uh, competitively. And then older brothers kind of got into the high school racing league and followed suit there. Kind of definitely started out through NICA, like you were saying. And that was kind of like the whole kickoff to the cycling journey for me. Um, Really kind of when it clicked to me on, you know, maybe I can make this thing into a career was... Like first year out of high school, first year in university and trying to balance the two of those and, you know, was doing better in races in Europe and spending more time over there and really just decided to dive full into it and pursue that. Very cool. Um, How did you uh, first get like plugged in? Um, Because I know, you know, we have another... Uh, local boy done well, Luke Lampretti recently, I know got picked up and that's pretty exciting, but yeah. How, how did you make the transition over there? Was it kind of like a self-funded journey or like, how did you get plugged into the scene at first? No, definitely. I think, uh, USA cycling is, you know, done a great job in the past with doing trips over for junior and U23 ranks. Um, 
definitely got picked up by that program pretty young, starting on the mountain bike in high school, actually. And did a few trips with them to like the World Cups and Worlds one year. And they really supported that journey and, you know, like really bought into me and I bought into them and definitely, uh, yeah, leaned on that relationship to bring me over and do a lot of those races that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to. Very cool. Did they pick you out from the racing itself or did you do the talent ID camps that I know uh, they recruit from as well? No, it was just through the racing. Yeah, I started on the mountain bike and then quickly uh, opened conversations for, for road. Very cool. Okay, so um, you know, you, you've had the privilege of being on some really storied teams, particularly for American riders. Um, you know, this first uh, Irish team, I think, actually has since folded, uh, if I'm familiar with it. But you know, Jelly Belly uh, Maxis was like a just like a giant of like the development continental team. What, what was your time like uh, when you raced for them in 2017? Yeah, no, that was great. I mean, a lot of. Uh great people that were on that team like people that are still racing um got to spend the year with them uh like i said i was on more or less on double duty throughout the u23 years so those four mm -hmm. years i was split time between the national team and the club team um but yeah i got to do tour california with them and kind of get my real first taste at uh what the big boys were doing very cool um Awesome. So, so tell me a little bit about, so the next team, um, team CCB in 2018, um, it looks like the team as a whole had fewer podium places than maybe the previous year. Um, but you yourself, uh, won stage six of the baby Giro. Is that right? Yeah. So that was a, I had gone into the year without a team actually. Mm. And CCB had given me a lifeline kind of, and early January, um, action hog and sperm to actually pick me up which is um for those who don't know kind of like the leading uh u23 development team for pretty much uh i'd say the world like a lot of the people that go there end up stepping up to the world tour within a few years um was axel merck still running the program um when you were in it yeah 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 a lot of time with axel still cool. there i believe did you uh have a chance to meet his father by chance I did not. No, did not. All right. Meet Eddie. All right no problem. Uh, Don't bad of, boy. <laughs> so for those of whom that aren't familiar, uh, Axel Merckx was a former professional cyclist, but maybe had to live, unfortunately, in the shadow of his father, Eddie Merckx, uh, the winningest uh, pro cyclist of all time. So very cool. And then um, uh, 2019, uh, before COVID, you pivoted over to EF Education first and while there were some like very serious uh, future names on uh, Huggins uh, Berman action that year, um, actually jumping in this, it's kind of looking back at the time, but like Jal Almeida, um, yeah. Will Barda, Sean Bennett on this, it's pretty good, but Christopher Blevins was there, um, Ruby Oliveira, uh, Jasper Philipson, like that was a serious heavy hitter crew oh, yeah. that year. What, what was it like oh, to yeah. like, race with those guys? Oh man, it was great. I think it was like, we all thought of it as the dream team. I think we showed up to races and we kind of showed up to win every time we went to a race. Awesome. And a lot of the times we did win. Yeah. Yeah. It looks it was... like it. What, um, what was kind of like the campaign effort that year? Was it like 2.1 UCI 2.1 type races usually? Or like, what were you guys focused on? Yeah. Like 
0.1s and HCs. And mm-hmm. then we did Tour California, which was a world tour at the time, I believe. Um, okay. So like whole US campaign. Then yeah, like mainly 2.1s and HCs over in Europe. Awesome. What was uh what was the journey like then getting picked up by uh, by Jonathan Votner's the following year for 2019 where you know what what did that uh process look like? Yeah. Um strange process. I mean, I think uh any any year like a lot of riders will get strung along quite late to get mm-hmm. a contract. Um they came in pretty late in the game to me to conversations actually. It was like right around Worlds that year that they really kicked things off and I had my like first conversation with them over there and things progressed pretty quickly. Um, I had a couple other teams that I'd been chatting with and was looking like those two were not going to be a viable option anymore. So, um, yeah, I think within like a week it progressed from like discussions to a signed contract. So very, very cool. fast. And yeah. For those of whom that aren't, uh, cycling or pro cycling fans, uh, EF education first is probably currently like the most uh, Americanized team. Uh, Jonathan Votner's, uh, the, the team director is a former American racer and has been kind of an anchor, uh, for a lot of, uh, American racers going to Europe for many years. Uh, what, what was it like working with Jonathan? Yeah. I mean, I didn't have a, a crazy amount of overlap with him. Uh, I think like the structure of the team that he set up is great. I mean, I think anyone that comes from that team would say it has probably the best team environment out of any world team, world tour team. Like everyone, like the staff, the riders, everyone just wants to hang out and have a good time. And yeah, it's serious because it's, it's our jobs, but doesn't mean it needs to be miserable and mm-hmm. definitely a good atmosphere there. Very cool. So I was kind of looking through the Palmares for the, uh, for that particular season. And I was reminded like that was the year, uh, Alberto Bettyall won the, mm-hmm. uh, Ron Vlen So what, what was it like, uh, being on a team that won the, tour of flanders that year that's like one of my favorite races okay no no it was pretty cool um yeah. i wasn't at that i did, wasn't in like the whole, uh, spring campaign there mm-hmm. uh so i didn't have a whole lot of overlap with that team but yeah no definitely cool to have that uh rider on the team in any race you overlapped with them it was like yeah you have someone that's immediately one of the favorites there and you just kind of have that uh respect in the peloton immediately so that was pretty so cool, cool. So zooming out, you know, I, I don't think we talked about maybe, you know, your specialization. Uh, for those of whom that aren't cycling fans, there's kind of this, this saying like horses for courses. Um, and there is like a lot of variation in terms of uh, people, whether you're like a, a sprinter specialist, uh, like a pure climbing specialist, specialty rider, or like a, a GC rider that can kind of do it all and survive over three weeks and everything in between. Um I know on your pro cycling stats, you're, you're kind of listed as like an all rounder, but like, what would you say you like, you really excelled at, or what was the kind of riding that you loved the most? Yeah. I mean, I think early on in my career, I wasn't really sure and was just kind of like, you know, throwing pace at the wall and hoping it was going to stick kind of thing. Uh, didn't really choose anything kind of floated around. Uh, and then like the last couple of years before I ultimately retired and really kind of found like a love for climbing and trying to go uphill fast and really leaned into that and tried to make that my thing. Very cool. So, you know, 2019, the last, uh, pre pandemic year, uh, you stayed with team EF education first for another year going into 2020. Um, I mean, the, the team had some great results that year, two stage wins in the Giro, Michael Woods won a stage of the Vuelta, but, um, 
you know, what was it like as, you know, the early spring wore on and things, you know, started to shut down? Like, what was that like racing in the Peloton at that point? Oh, it was strange times for sure. I mean, it was right around, um, uh, when was that? I think guys had just gotten back from UAE from like a forced quarantine when like things really started kicking off in January, February time, maybe even March. And then right around Strada Bianchi, it was like Italy locked down, still had flights booked for to go to Italy for that race. And kind of like day to day, wasn't sure what was going to happen or not. You know, I think it was one night before we were scheduled to fly out to Italy. They were like, all right, no go closing it down. Italy's locked down, no more racing there. So kind of put that on halt, but stuff up in Belgium was still not totally sure. And I was riding pretty well at the time. So I was like, all right, I'll stick it out and stay in Europe for a while and kind of see how things go. And then, yeah, I mean, as we all know, like things progressively just got more and more locked down and more restrictions and isolation started happening and yeah, strange times for sure. And then kind of, ended up uh fully locked inside in spain for a few weeks there so um yeah so remind me exactly where were you living at the time like what was your home base yeah i was i was in Girona, spain uh mm-hmm. it's a smallish town kind of 120k north of barcelona up the coast mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um I, I you know i just remember it was like so surreal but like you're seeing these horror stories about pro cyclists that because the, the lockdowns were like so much more draconian and intense like in italy uh because like yeah. i remember people being like okay we're doing like 20 hours on zwift now in my like little apartment um <laughs> what were the lockdowns like in uh, girona for you yeah i mean pretty much the same like it flipped uh yeah it was pretty much no outside like you get caught outside on the bike you're gonna get a fine um yeah, pretty much the same as Italy at the time. And then so, kind of spent like two weeks through that and jetted back off to the States. So very easy to preserve your fitness during that, that time, I take it. Yeah, no no drinking at all. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, man. Crazy. Okay, cool. So, you know, obviously... Um, you know, the tour did go on. It was like very bizarre as a, as a fan to watch it. I'm sure it was weird to race it, uh, too, but just, you know, you see the Dutch corners and places like this, uh, the Alptuez that are just like empty is like completely bizarre. But, um, you know, I know the, the following year, uh, you know, kind of wrapping up before you pivoted to some other teams, um, you raced for Quebec ASOS. Um, it looks like they had a pretty good, uh, string of like three stage wins in the Giro, but, um, kind of looking back on that, like tell us a little bit more about like your selection for your three grand tour rides and kind of like what that was like, uh, being on the bike. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so like starting off with the first one, first Giro, uh, with EF kind of first year in the world tour and this is kind of doing all those. Yeah. 2019 pre pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, things were still, uh, as they were. Um, yeah, like got the, Got the go ahead pretty late. I think it was like 10 days before the Giro started that they made the selection and put me on. Um, so not a whole lot of time to kind of like mentally prepare for that. But no, super cool experience. Like went into it with a, a great team there. Um, yeah. What was your what was your role uh, for the team in that Giro? 
I think it was mostly just just finish, kind of like going through the paces there, seeing how I was going to do after three weeks, um, help out where needed, and yeah, kind of went into it with. I think they had pretty little ambition for me in that, and we're just kind of seeing how it went. But yeah, I mean, I think I, yeah, no, like went into it not a whole lot of expectations and pulled some uh, results. I'm uh, quite happy with out of that actually. Very cool. For the listeners at home that aren't cycling fans, I'm sorry for keep prefacing this, but to put it in context, uh, a Grand Tour like the Giro d'Italia, that's the Italian Grand Tour, the Volta d'Espagna is the Spanish one, and the Tour de France, which most of people have heard of, um, it's pretty much the equivalent of running a marathon every day for 21 days, uh, or 21 race days, and there's two rest days in between. So it is like an insane uh, feat. And so, you know, when we talk about low expectations or just finishing or doing this, like that is such an incredible uh, accomplishment by itself. And, you know, getting called up to one of the three grand tours is kind of like, um, you know, making it to the World Series. Like it is the big show um, for pro cycling. So I want to emphasize for the non-fans out there, uh, check it out. Um, very cool. Um, awesome. So... 2019, um, it sounds like maybe 2020. Did you come down in COVID or, or something like that? Or what caused you to pull out that year? No, I actually, I crashed. Uh, mm. It's like a pretty grippy crosswind day and like funneled us under this um, 30K to go banner, I think, and big old pile up and broke my wrist on day seven. Mm. That's a bummer. Uh, not COVID, but it. next day, I think uh, a couple teams got pulled out. Okay. And yeah, I remember that it was like so wild, just like seeing favorites and teams yeah. just get whittled away. It was crazy. Cool. So, uh, your final tour appearance, uh, which you completed was, uh, or sorry, the tour de France. So the big show, uh, 2021, um, you even had a breakaway in stage 13. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, super cool. Um, actually, yeah, really wanted to do the race, obviously like was pretty sure I was going to do it. Spent a lot of time at altitude and then actually got a strep throat like five days before the thing started. So kind of kicked off the race on antibiotics still and was pretty miserable for the first like 10 days in Britannia, I think. Um, and kind of came around mid race and yeah, had a bit more legs there and yeah, went to a couple breakaways and just kind of tried to survive the last week. Yeah, super cool experience. I don't remember the composition of the race that year. Was it a really climbing race? Uh, did they have very many time trials? Like what was kind of the, the overall race composition? Yeah, so first 10 days were like incredibly punchy. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like uh, Britannia region and France at all, but really rolly, super steep, like five minute or less climbs, um, hectic finishes, like a lot of crashes in the first 10 days, so... And then it kind of kicked off into the mountains there. And um, yeah, rest of the race was pretty mountainous until uh, last few days in France, like leading into Paris. In the in the really climbing stages, did you have any surface area that, like with Teddy Pagachar and uh, Yunus Vingigo and some of the other people? Or are they just like so far up the road, you don't even see them? Yeah, they're so far up the road. I think like, <laughs> yeah, that that's the 1% right there that just kind of yeah. like stands up and they just walk away from you more or less. Totally. 
Okay, cool. So uh, really exciting. Are there any other like really favorite memories from your pro tour days that you want to share with the, the listeners? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, finishing the tour is pretty cool. I think like having friends and family and like your partner thereafter and like that was definitely really special and to then spend the next day like in Paris after a huge event that was there is yeah, I mean, lifelong memory. What um what are your thoughts on kind of the increasing like anglicization of the pro peloton? You know, it used to be that even maybe 10 15 years ago it was like a much more French affair and it seems like a lot of the director sportif and all these people are speaking English like have you have you, I mean, I know you weren't in the Peloton for like decades, but like, what was that like for you? Uh, that kind of change has been going underway. Yeah, I think it makes it a lot more, you know, a lot easier to communicate with everyone. And there's like almost a community in the Peloton that you like look forward to seeing friends and faces on different teams that, you know, maybe live in a completely different country that, you know, you don't have a whole lot of overlap with, but you've like slowly grown a friendship by spending hundreds of days with them every year and just kind of having English as a, I don't know, more expected, like accepted and spoken language has definitely helped that and help, you know, the English speakers feel more comfortable there. So, uh, do you feel like you needed to memorize like, uh, curses and like multiple languages or did people just keep their own <laughs> when you're uh, chewing out people in the Peloton? No, a little bit of everything. I think it's good to know like some Spanish and some Italian phrases there's definitely guys that don't speak English or will, you know, pretend that they don't understand. So having a few things in your back pocket never hurt. Very cool. Um, awesome. So, you know, when you were really flying, like you, you think about some of your fittest years, like what did like a typical training week look like for you uh, when you're like a build phase? Yeah, pretty typical would be like 20 to 27 hours. I mean, I think you kind of stay in that. 90% of the year um, volume really doesn't change a whole lot from when you get through the first like month of base season. Like maybe you have a push week here and there that's um, high twenties, low thirties, but most of the time you're just kind of like hovering and trying to maintain, um, you know, 90, 95% fitness throughout the year. And what, um, you know, I know more recently, uh, there's been a huge revolution in cycling where, you know, people aren't starving themselves anymore. Uh, they're really on top of their nutrition and, and topping off carbs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, like what did kind of your nutritional regimen, were you taking it seriously at that point or it hadn't totally hit yet? Yeah. When I, when I first started, I think there was still a little bit of the starve yourself kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that really didn't work for me. That was probably like when I was the heaviest and struggling the most in the Peloton like those first couple of years on EF, um, just really struggled with the food, not feeling properly. And then, yeah, that kind of like switch happened. Um, and everyone just started eating a ton of carbs. And I think a lot of people got a lot skinnier by doing that just because you're actually eating what you're burning, totally. which uh, seems to make sense. But for some people it didn't. Yeah. Cause it seems to me at least personally, like when you go in a heavy bonk, you eat way more after cause it just feels like out of control. Yeah. You're not sating yourself. Like, at the right amount. It seems like if you're eating it as you go, you're probably not going to like over, you know, swing the pendulum so hard the other way uh, when you're done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you go into like a fight or flight response, like you're essentially, yeah, like you're 
dying of like starvation. <laughs> like, of course, you're just going to like go into the cookie jar and eat 20 cookies until your stomach hurts. Like For, for the uh, non-cycling listeners that have never had the dis- distinct privilege of bonking, it is a, uh, a turn of phrase in cycling where you have drained yourself so hard, like there's no glycogen left in your muscles or like anywhere in your entire body. Uh, you can start hallucinating, seeing dead loved ones up the road. It's just out of control. So it is a, it is a thing uh, to do for sure. So cool. Um, and then, yeah. So like in terms of your training composition, was it like mostly zone two, some like structured work or like, how are you thinking about your training days typically? Yeah. I mean, I think just out of nature, just spending so much time on the bike, you do a ton of zone two and easy riding. Um, but like the main focus was on like the top end power. And like for me, the last couple of years was like, you know, that 20 to 30 minute power range and nailing those efforts and seeing how much time you could spend in those zones while not like uh, completely blowing yourself up. So like a harder ride, maybe you spend like an hour in that, you know, high tempo, low threshold mm-hmm. zone, which is like about your maximum output for an hour and you try and do that it's like an hour in that over like a four or five hour period Mm -hmm. and that was kind of like the the main focus there makes sense so if you look back at you know um as you get plugged back into civilian world um and if there's anyone that knows someone that's listening that's like an aspiring and, and upcoming cyclist maybe like a high schooler in nika or something like that uh what kind of like tips or advice would you give someone who's who's hoping to do something like you did yeah i mean i think a lot of it is right place at the right time which is pretty unfortunate um and i think the cycling culture in america at least like racing and getting over to europe is getting harder and harder now mm. um like i don't know exactly the the state of usa cycling and the trips now um but i think that's that landscape's changed quite a bit but like Nike was a huge resource to me. I think getting involved there and trying to start conversations with, you know, there's, you know, whoever's representing USA cycling at Nike, or there's obviously some overlap there and, you know, leverage that network to find like next steps, but it's incredibly difficult. Makes sense. Um, you know, we, yeah. we, we talked about a little earlier, but, uh, Luke Lampretti, a uh, 20-year-old from Sebastopol, so it's just north of where we live, um, recently got picked up by uh, Sidal Quickstep, uh, just like a perennially superpower uh, team. Um, obviously, he's been racing like Trinity Racing over there for a little while, but um, mm-hmm. what tips would you give someone like uh, uh, Luke, who's like pivoting over to like the Pro Tour for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's been over in Europe a lot and spent a ton of time there. Um, like, you know, try to make that your home, make it comfortable living in a new place. That's going to be very uncomfortable. Like language is different. People are different, but just kind of lean into it and try to not, not look back too much at the States and yeah, make that your home. Don't get on a uh, Patrick Lefebvre's uh, bad side either, I guess. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like I makes enemies easily. <laughs> so, okay. Um, cool. So, all right. So through, um, just a combination of factors. Um, you know, there, there was a rule change a couple of years ago to make some of the, um, the, the squads, the GC, the, the GC squads for, uh, you know, the bigger stage races, like a little smaller and a couple of things conspired to mm-hmm. squeeze out some people. Um, I know your career came to an end a little sooner than you would have planned. Um, so 
like let's talk to uh kind of like what it's been like uh pivoting back um into kind of civilian world so um the the thing i really like about your story so much is you know instead of uh goofing around at a you know middling state school for a couple of years um you actually went over had this incredible uh experience abroad and you've come back and you've kind of like without dropping a beat have slotted yourself right into where your peers that would have gone to college have done. So um, you're now a sales development representative at a, a large tech company. Like what is that, what has that transition been like for you coming back into the kind of like the tech world? Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, I knew I didn't really want to waste any time with, you know, struggling, like, not struggling, but going back to school and trying to figure out what was next. Um, like I started a lot of conversations pretty early kind of leading into 2023, like later in 2022 on what next steps would be after, after racing and kind of what the landscape of um, jobs looked like for former professional athletes and kind of chatted with a lot of friends on what I wanted to do and what they thought I should do. And just try to find every opportunity that I could really, you know, open up for myself and lean into them and try a bunch of different things. And I don't know doors opened and ended up here. Makes sense. How do you think maybe, uh, you know, we were joking on the last podcast on cycling teaches you how to suffer and the, the, the way that's transferred over to the professional world. Like, how do you think your, your background in such a crazy endurance sport like pro cycling has, uh, affected your outlook on the corporate world? Yeah, no, I mean, great question. I think like cycling and sports in general just kind of puts you in this area of like knowing how to suffer and knowing how to push it, like albeit physical and mental suffering are a lot different, but trying to, you know, channel that same energy that you had in physical suffering into mental suffering or, you know, pushing yourself to do one more task or one more something and just kind of, I don't know, show up every day and stay consistent through it. Do you find, cause you know, functionally, uh, so, so how old were you again when you went over to Europe for the first time? Uh, 17 for a racing trip. Do you, do you find like, if you compare yourself to your peers, maybe high school or people you're working with now, like, do you feel like funk, you know, kind of entering the workforce in that way? Like, do you feel like a little more mature than other 27 year olds that you're working with or how, how's that kind of compared? Um, I don't know about more mature, but just different experiences and kind of thrown out on my own, maybe a bit earlier, like I uh, pretty much moved over to Europe full time at 22 and was kind of, you know, you're separated from your family and friends that you grew up with pretty young and figuring stuff out a lot earlier than a lot of might. Uh, so I think maybe I had some life skills that other people hadn't developed right out of the university. Um, talked to a lot of different people from a lot of different cultures and, Obviously, like, I mean, in sales, when you're doing business with people from all over the world, that's, that's like a huge skill to be able to lean on and like, I don't know, hope to speak their language a bit and just kind of know what you're going to get when someone picks up the phone on the other side. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, you know, I know you're trying to establish a, a career in tech sales or something like adjacent, um, from this starter role, um, What's something maybe you found like the most surprising 
uh, since you've started uh, as like an SDR? Yeah, I mean, definitely these, yeah, companies like processes change all the time. Um, I definitely expected things to be a bit more set in stone and things to be built out. But yeah, like things change week to week. Uh, you have to be able to adapt very quickly and just kind of be willing to, you know, change your processes every single day or every single week and kind of move on to what's next and what's better. And that was definitely a big surprise to me with, you know, how fast things change within a business. Makes sense. Um, okay. And so, you know, outside of, uh, maybe just kind of your job and getting started on your career, like what, what's next for you? Uh, do you have ambitions to stay plugged into the cycling community or any other big projects on the horizon? Um, still figuring out kind of how much and what involvement I want to be in the cycling community and, you know, what's next there. Like, obviously I still love it and having this almost year now to reset from racing and take a step back is, you know, showing me that I really still do enjoy it and want to be on the bike still. Uh, but yeah, I need to still figure out like what my relationship with the sport and, uh, in a racing way is going to be. That's but. good to hear. There's nothing sadder to me than like you hear Andre Agassi like hates tennis or Bradley Wiggin hates riding his bike. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's glad to hear it. So you take the year off, you're cultivating some mass and you're ready to maybe get back into it. So yeah, exactly. Awesome. Okay, cool. So um, I think we can pivot or transition to the end of our conversation today. Um, so maybe, uh, I'll steal a question from one of my favorite podcasts, uh, invest like the best, which is, um, what would you say is maybe, um, one of the kindest things that someone has ever done for you? Oh man. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I think, um, I have a friend, Virgilio, that's kind of, uh, longtime friend, cycling buddy, kind of went to him with, you know, hey man, really thinking this is going to be the end of my career. And honestly, he took him, took it upon himself to, you know, just throw me onto his network and open a lot of doors for me. And that was probably like the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. And just like, almost like a blind trust and like friendship to just, you know, take me under his wing and put me into the working force and get me exposed to that. Love it. All right. Well, Sean, uh, with that, uh, brings us to the end of the episode. Um, great talking to you today and, uh, we'll see you out on the road and, uh, thanks for the time. Likewise.